Hello, folks. This is the first episode of the Direct Republic podcast. I am your host, Donnie Gebert. This isn't going to be one of those Joe Rogan things that lasts for thousands of episodes because my whole goal is to just put out some information to the widest audience possible and be done with it. My, uh, my MO is not really to talk about me. However, this is episode one. And I don't know why. I, I kind of get a bit of a, an understanding of why people like to know who they're getting their information from and why. Okay, I could see that. Um, but to an extent, you know, listening to someone talk about themselves a long time, it's, it's not fun. So, if you are not interested in my life, then skip to episode two because I'm going to upload them both at the same time, so that won't be an issue, and you'll have some actual content. If you continue on down the line here, you're just going to hear about me. You've been warned. So, this is functionally my allocution for the 19 years, 1 month, 12 days I spent in the DOD, and, you know, the stuff before that, and a little bit after that, up till today, and... If you're listening to this, it's because I wrote a book called The Direct Republic, The Null Hypothesis of Politics, and you're trying to find out more about how to decentralize a legislature. This is a method, not an opinion. There's a big difference between doggy style and missionary. Neither one of them are opinions. You have opinions about them, but a description of a bottom-up legislature, that's how it functions. It's not an opinion. All of those mechanics work in some legislature somewhere in the world anyway, so that's for a different podcast. Unfortunately, this is about me. So I come from a little town called Carbondale, Pennsylvania, and the surrounding. My uh, parents had me when I was 17 years old. Oh, I'm sorry, my parents had me when they were 17 years old. My, my dad was 18. My mom uh, turned 17 in August. She had me in September. Had my sister in July and then had, turned 18 the following August. So I'm the single worst economic choice my parents ever made because they would have done a lot better to just skip me and save. But they did not. Um, they've worked really hard their whole lives. They not the not the typical what everybody thinks of a boomer. They're, they're barely boomers. They're of the right age, but they came around. Um, I was born in '77. My dad was 18 in '77. Most boomers kind of started launching their lives. Um, you know, 20, 22 to 30, somewhere in that late 80, late 70s, early 80s. My parents were still on the young side of boomer, but. Um, other than that, not too much more to say. My, uh, I, I was kind of always a weirdo. My, my first mission when I was, I was three. I, if I knew, I knew my dad would tell me no, that he wasn't going to take me hunting, and I didn't ask. I just got in the car and I went. Way in over my head, he drove me miles out into the woods, didn't know I was in the car. Here I am. Just a, a living detail that could be snuffed out by accident. But, uh, you know, it worked out well, and So, uh, me. I went to seven different schools. Uh, the order in which I... They weren't in a row. 
one, one, two, one, three, three, four, five, five, six, five, five, seven. That is the order in which I went uh, to my schools because, you know, broke parents and uh, broke, but my dad insisted on not public school for a bunch of years. I would do the same thing with my kids, but I, I just train them at home. So they, they go to school and they see the one side and then they come home and I'm, a, I'm able, my dad wasn't really able to educate me past school. He was a truck driver, he was a butcher, worked hard, but not going to be giving me a lot of education to get me out of our, you know, the collective hole that most humans live in. Economic, um, economic prosperity is not something that just grows on trees or anything. So, and it usually takes generations, it usually takes generations to get out of poverty. So, and all humans are born in poverty. It's just kind of one of, well, until a family gets up enough head of steam to figure out how to do it. And, you know, we could claim violent privilege and whatnot. I, just looking at humanity in toto, it takes a lot of work to get a family out of farm labor or hunter-gatherer. Um, the good thing about going to seven different schools is you see a lot by the time you're 18. And it's a weird pace. Like my life was at a fevered pace my whole life because I, did, I didn't really functionally understand what a not fevered pace of life was until a couple of years after I was out of the military. My first 39 years were fast forward almost. Um, a lot of different kids in different places and, you know, always being the new guy never helps. But around all of the schoolwork, I, I did a lot of other things. It wasn't just school. I mean, seven different schools sounds like a lot. I had girlfriends, some of which had drama attached. I played all of the sports. Um, I didn't play them every year. I played what I was most interested in on a schedule that basically my parents could support because dad was always working and mom was able to take me sometimes. So I would play basketball, usually two sports a year. Dad was real supportive of football. He, baseball, I didn't like it as much. And it was um, off, you know, weird, weird timing and stuff like that. I'd rather do other things in the summer too. Um, basketball, I played a little bit of soccer uh, in the private schools I was at. So I got a really well-rounded experience. I wouldn't say it was a great well-rounded education because primary education in our country is garbage. It's straight up garbage. No, no point in even discussing it. They don't teach economics, they don't teach philosophy, and they don't teach logic. So you really can't figure out how the world around you works unless you understand the basics. And they're just going to give you a bunch of facts. It, you know, you got to learn your math sometime. But the math is the gateway to economics you have to understand how to scale in a world of hundreds of millions and billions of people and that's economics your little life in toto you know just looks like the hobesian state of fuck like everybody else um i also did hunting so uh part of that was necessity you know dad and i would have to kill deer sometimes out of season because food that's how that worked and uh I stayed pretty current with movies and TV, and that I just found, you know, there's always an entertainment factor, but it really allows you to relate to other people. I could tease my mom. My mom doesn't watch movies, and she doesn't watch a lot of TV. She just watches the news. 
so all of the analogies that my brother will be and I will be able to just roll through and have a real fast conversation. My mom can't keep up because she didn't see the movie. So for all of, you know, for as much as you want to get in on your kids when they're wasting time watching the tube, make sure that they're not, you know, my daughter watched the entire seasons of Friends. She wasn't even born when Friends was over. When she watched, was in the middle of trying to watch it, you know, the third time, I'm like, hey, find something else to watch. You've already seen that. So don't be too critical of your kids uh, watching too many movies or TV because it really does help them relate to other people, especially in public school. You know, you don't really know those people in any other reason other than we go to school together and, oh, do we have other things in common? It makes, let's just say, coming from the kid who was always the new kid, if you were current in TV and movies, you were at least relatable to the, to the in-group when you were not in it. I played a lot of video games and different types of video games. It was all an up-and-coming industry. The beautiful thing about video games, and you should always encourage your kids to play at least a couple of them, a couple of different kinds, and because the game doesn't cheat. And I'm not saying that there aren't cheaters in life, and I'm not getting into ethics right now. I'm saying you must learn competency. You must learn to beat the game that you're playing. doesn't matter what it is. If you're going to craft wood you better start crafting wood like bob vila and then you got to make it pretty on top of that because a machine will make sturdy furniture a lot faster than you will so you have to do something the machine doesn't and the the video game is the, the best way to learn how to not cheat because the machine is not going to allow you you're just going to have to learn the system learn the method and then apply it and if you make it about you, and you get everybody's going to get frustrated, and I, I, I've thrown many a game pad and many a tantrum, but you really got to learn your own competency level, and you know, arrange your own head to understand how a system works. Otherwise, you'll be a victim of it. I didn't really know how the DOD worked, and I was in it for 19 years. I knew how to work that system. My my career pattern is obvious, but. I didn't necessarily know how the system was working me until after I got out. And that was only because I went from being what one would consider a very active and learned child. For 18 years old, I was very learned. I had gotten around. I had multiple schools. Uh, my parents were very religious, uh, Christian, you know, Baptist, Bible thumping when I was younger. And we had started off Catholics, you know, Catholics until the age of reason, as George would say. So I learned two different schools of theology, and then I learned another, you know, anything that all of the theologians in my life would point out in other religions. So I got exposed to Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, and, you know, in the same way that political people, in the same way, it's not so much politics, in the same way that um, people have their favorite sporting teams, you know, theologians have their favorite religions, and then you go and you listen to a theologian talk about, you know, their team and how they're going to fight against the, the Jehovah's Witness and whatnot. Uh, they didn't get into Scientology. That that came later. But, you know, that just the weirder man-made religion. Well, I don't say they're not man-made. I will say the modern religion isn't that much different than the ancient religion. It was made up by some guy. But a lot of people don't like that notion because they there's claims you know there are claims of life and experience after physical death and none of those can be proven so it's not really cricket to just tell the 
tell the believers that uh, belief of what's after death is a problem. However, belief of what in life is a problem, because that's a lot more like the video game. It's got rules, it's got enterprise environment factors, you are subject to them, they are not in opinion. So, the video game really gets you into the place where you say, my enterprise environment factors dictate how I proceed. And... You know, if you can't assess a system, you can't judge it. People like to judge stuff, get emotionally involved. It doesn't really work. Um, I also read, I, I don't read as much as I used to because I have audiobooks. So when I say I don't read, I just, I just blow it in my ear while I'm going down the road. I don't sit down and look at it in text. That's all. Uh, reading makes me sleepy. There's too many words on the page. They all run together. I get a lot more done um, in an audiobook, but... The kind of books I read in high school were um, not standard. I was, I kind of decided I was going into the army probably 14 or 15 because it just seemed more interesting to me. I'd also been, you know, in a, in a Baptist world at a certain point, you, you don't, subs, you don't abs, uh, ascribe to violence. You just recognize that at a certain point, you have to defend yourself. Now, granted, this is all ethical and understanding your enterprise environment factors, and I was conservative, Christian, going towards the military, not so much a Christian, but definitely a conservative enough that you would say, um, the kind of conservatism that comes from economic broke. I wouldn't say we weren't poor, but we were broke. Um, I, I read Dick Marchenko, I read Tom Clancy, um, a lot of military-facing books, if not just straight-up manuals on... Uh, in the, the military intelligence, we have a thing called a WEG, Weapons Equipment Guide. And it's functionally just all of the equipment that you'd find on a battlefield. And, it, you know, it's a reference list. I have these things. This is the capabilities of this make and model. These things are in front of me. Now I know its capabilities and I can plan for them. I was looking through things similar to the WEG. I was, you know, Jane's and... All of the military-facing stuff. And I was showing up like that on day one. So, you know, I was a little ahead of the privates. I wasn't ahead of many sergeants. But I was ahead of privates when I showed up. And that's a good place to be because you will make fewer mistakes. You will attract less attention. And you will suffer less. You, you know, you're adapting to that system. And some things in the military are dumb. But a lot of the stuff is standardization for fluidly having the enterprise environment factors move downhill instead of uphill. It's not that you're going to agree on how it works. It's that you're going to do it this way by contract because we're trying to move forward and we don't need to explain why to you every time you're curious. That's all it really boils down to. That gets used against you later, but we'll get to that later. So <clears throat> up till that point, I'd had... Um, somewhat a I went into the military with a serious girlfriend. I'd seen, been seeing her for more than a year. And, uh, you know, I was just mature. Not adulty, just mature. You know, 18-year-olds still got seven years of brain growth left on them. So you can extrapolate there. Um, I joined the Army as a 55 Delta Explosive Ordnance Disposal. So after I got done with basic training, I went to Redstone Arsenal and I was given a backup MOS. They don't tell you about this on the way in. 
And that was 55 Bravo ammunition supply. Should you fail EOD school, which I didn't even really know was an option, um, you will be a 55 Bravo. So here I am, 18 years old, turned 19, and I failed EOD school, mostly because I didn't understand the Army. And all of the platoon sergeants looked at me and said, yes, this one can pass his tests, but I don't want to babysit him on the weekends. I don't. I, this guy has not been around long enough that he, he might go out and get curious and explore. And when you find out how the chain of command deals with, you know, recreational fuckery, nobody wants to deal with it. So EOD units tend to recruit to older people. And uh, getting people in the army on the EOD options, kind of like a recruiting tool. So I got a lot. All that weapons equipment guide stuff helped, and I did pretty well. I was at my last test. I got Darth Grader on the way. You know, his, his name was Sarv First Class Barkley. And all you EOD types out there laughing, if you remember Barkley. And it was Air 2. So it's the test where all the kids get weeded out. And I was a kid, and I was weeded out, and that's the end. So I... When I, I got to work in all of the other um, portions, there's two portions after Air 2, it was IEDs and nukes, and I got to work in both of those before I went to my first assignment. So even though I wasn't walking away with a badge, I was walking away with all of the stuff that they teach in school. And you get a really, EOD school isn't a bullshit school, you kind of learn a lot of that stuff there. You know, stuff changes in the field a bit, you know, there's more of a tactical, tactical reasoning behind it. But um, you learn a lot there. It's, it, and then this is where I, I call the, the military philosophy course. You will deal with the nature of the problem. You walk up on a piece of ordnance that is HE, that's high explosive, you don't worry about fire. One, one of the safeties you're not really going to observe is fire. I mean, if the thing is smoking, you're not going to go near it. But other pieces of ordnance like white phosphorus, they come with a fire hazard. It might not necessarily blow up and instantaneously kill you. It will blow up and throw fire on you. So you're going to take different safety precautions based on this item, this random item that you're going to walk up on, and you don't get to judge it. You get to assess it. If you, if you judge it, you will, not, you will not understand what you're dealing with. And all of these things aren't pristine like you see in a book. You know, a bomb that falls off of a wing of an aircraft does not hit the ground and look like the picture. It looks different. So if for whatever reason it doesn't go off and U.S. ordinance has a 10% thud rate, average, you'll see people who judge, they're, they're gone in the first week. People who are emotional about how they do this, first week. But because I'd, you know, I'd been hunting and I'd done, you know, I played a lot of games, I'd read a lot of books, I kind of, I didn't stress out on these tests. And... It's just this uh, self-assessment of I can deal with the nature of a problem on its terms because I'm not trying to make myself part of it. Lots of people make themselves part of whatever they're trying to do because they feel about it. And uh, a lot of people refer to this as the cold calculating military type. Well, listen, the nature of the job requires you to assess and deal with it so you don't die. That's where it all comes from. Pragmatic understanding, not ideological understanding. And it's your job. That's what you're going to learn to do. So, after I failed EOD school, I went to uh, Korea. 
and that was a really good experience, uh, you know, outside of the country and different culture and full grown army people and full grown adults and people had been doing this for a while. And it was a good maturing experience for a young man, not away from women, away from my family and stuck immersed in military life for a year fully. And uh, it was it was a really good experience. Like I, I would like to do it again. I wouldn't want to live in Korea for a year because either you want to go for, you know, two weeks or three weeks and then come home or you want to move there and settle there for a reason. A year just hanging out there doesn't doesn't really fulfill a purpose. But Korea is a uh, it's a place. It's an interesting place for anybody who's who's looking for something new and exciting. After Korea, I went to Fort Bragg. While I was at Fort Bragg, I got deployed two times to Fort, I'm sorry, not Fort, West Point uh, during the summers to help the cadets during training. And I went twice to National Training Center, Fort Irwin, California. Fort Irwin is an awful lot like we're going to go fight the Russians in the desert. Um, the West Point tour is an awful lot like trying to help you know the cadets you're you know you're supposed to salute a cadet everybody immediately stops doing that because they don't they know way less than you do i mean there are privates giving instruction to these brand new cadets and those privates you don't trust them for nothing but they know how to do this because you already trained them to do that so they get to they get a little experience training at 19. that's good experience for them and the lieutenant doesn't know any better he just sees this private who knows stuff that he doesn't so that's also a good thing for a lieutenant to see sometimes um, after Fort Bragg, I got out. Oh, uh, before I get, move on, the, uh, one of the problems I had at Fort Bragg was a real problem of a staff sergeant. She was an African-American female who really got in on people for some really, really bizarre shit. So I was, I was started, you know, I was always kind of a, I knew that this was not supposed to happen. I know my systems management and I knew that according to the game we were playing, you know, just like a video game, according to the game of the United States Army, this staff sergeant is fucking with people for no reason. And there's a little bit of you get to do that. Well, she had been singling people out for certain things, and I had made note of it. I don't fully remember what I was bringing to the table anymore. I got to admit, I was 21 when this was happening, and I'm 42 now. But there was a guy in our platoon named Quintana, Crispin Quintana. He was from Cuba. He got held up in basic training because they asked him why he wanted to join the army and he wrote a long letter about how he wanted to kill Castro. So he got himself a security uh, investigation before he left basic training because he wanted to kill Castro. Uh, he was in our platoon and he was, he was far blacker than this female. He was, uh, but he was Cuban. So even though he was the blackest African, there, there is no darker shade of African-American than Crispin Katana, he was all salsa. He didn't listen to rap music. He didn't um, speak as, other pe as uh, an American, African-American would do. He, he would, he, uh, his first language is Spanish. He often spoke Spanish, spoke it at home. So he was really the salsa flavor, and she would refer to him as boy. <laughs> So all of the stuff that I'd been noticing, I didn't know. But Quintana was actually getting it where apparently she was doing this to him away from where other people would see it. So she was promptly removed. And it was all, you know, 
privates standing up to the system. I was a specialist at the time, but you know, uh, junior people in the military standing up to the system and prevailing when the system is wrong, man, that was a weird thing for me because most of what I had seen pushback in the army looked like a bug getting squashed. But every once in a while, you, um, it's the scene in Private Ryan where Tom Hanks looks at the blonde guy and it's like, hey, everybody, pay attention. This is how you bitch. There's a proper way to bitch, but it's really along the what's going on. This doesn't function, not... I'm tired, I'm cold, I'm hungry, I'd like to make this about me, I'd like my preferences installed in this operation. So, I kind of learned at a young age, if you got something to say and you got a bitch about it, do it. it that, the year was 1999, I, there was uh, the Clinton drawdown. The Clinton drawdown was not a good time to try to re-enlist. So... I was not offered a change of MOS because I wasn't going to stay in that one. I wasn't offered any schools. I wasn't offered a bonus. So I said, no thanks. At that point, the ROI in this whole thing, not interested. Moving on. So I went to a guard unit back home. And what I didn't realize, I, uh, my uncle was in this guard unit. I'm like, cool, I'm going to go hang out with Jim. Well... I showed up in uh, December, and he retired. His, his retirement ceremony was in November. So I didn't realize the overlap. I, I knew by the time I got there. But basically, he told me, no, no, the guys are expecting you. It's not a problem. I said, okay. So I went to my National Guard unit, and my three cronies there were the Staff Sergeants 3. I showed up a specialist, but the three guys I hung out with were Nick and Bob and Muley. Uh, I walk through the door. Nick stops dead in his tracks and says, Jesus, you even look like him. Come on. Like, that was it. I, I, I was treated like family the day I walked through the door. <clears throat> so integrating into a military unit after you PCS from one place to another, there is a little transition time. Not this place. Jesus. We, we, only, you know, we got to see each other at least once a month. And then I was, you know... They, they kind of, they joked around, called me Jim's replacement. You know, my, my uncle was a sergeant first class. I wasn't, but it was a good, it was just a great environment to start learning in because I wasn't there to, you know, fuck around. And these people just, they don't fuck around. So they were too adulty to fuck around. Um, Nick was a computer guy. He owned a small uh, internet service provider back in the day. Uh, he was also a volunteer cop and EMT, so he had a breadth of experience that, in commo, he had a breadth of experience in security, and well, it was an infantry unit, so between the cop and the, and the infantry training, he was pretty good at it. Also, he hung out with Mule, I'll get to that in a minute. Bob was an, an electronics technician in the Navy, and he worked at Tobyhanna Army Depot repairing electronics equipment. Like, when I... Later on in the Navy, I got stuff that probably Bob fixed. But uh, Bob was good with Camo and just understand. He's a lot more mellower than everybody else. And would, he, he was kind of the, the level head. And uh, if the group needed tempering, it was Bob. And, and he was very, very methodical. He, he, the manner in which he thought was like tr well, electronic troubleshooting. I didn't know that then because I didn't know how then. But that's kind of his MO. And it, it was a good learning experience. And then Muley. Price, Muleheisen, 
is my boy. He, uh, the, the, my, my guiding compass. He, he was special forces back in the eighties. And there were some other special operations guys in the eighties. One of the guys name is Dave. Um, his, his 201 file for 20 years of service was only about four pages long. Like it was the thing you think it was supposed to be thicker than it was. You open it up and somebody from in there yells, turn off that light. We don't know what he did, but he knew a lot of stuff. He trained all the people in the unit. It was good. Muley was my personal guide to not being a fuck up in life. And he just trained me. Um, the conversations we were able to have about politics plus military plus how to apply the military to the political sphere. He was very liberty minded. He'd say, we're not doing this bullshit. He would speak of the Pennsylvania governor as if he was a prostitute. We are not doing that for the governor. He can go fuck himself. We're not doing any of that. We are here to liberate people. We train people, you know, de oppresso libre. We train to free the oppressed. That's it. We're going to do that stuff. We'll clean up natural disasters, but the government enforcing martial law, that prick can go fuck himself. And that was, that was my mentor. And man, if you got to have a mentor in the military, it's definitely not some system kiss, system ass kissing piss boy. You're better off having some guy who doesn't give a shit about the system, doesn't give a shit about his career, doesn't give a shit about anything other than conveying the knowledge that he gathered and passing it on. That is the best leadership you're ever going to have. It, it was my guard unit was the greatest experience, military experience. I learned more in, in two years, part time, two, it was two years and change, than I did my first four years. It's just a testament to the experience. Um, the real reason Muley was able to do this is he didn't, he, the verbiage was streamlined. I knew military terms, he knew military terms, he could describe everything in three dimensional space as it needed to unfold. Again, it wasn't a judgment. It was an assessment. This is what we're going to do. Don't get involved. Get involved. So what I didn't realize later is I was really being trained by a special forces guy. I didn't, I was, I was learning what I thought was advanced infantry stuff. And I didn't, I just gathered the information. I wasn't trying to categorize it. I wasn't trying to necessarily pass it on because I was still trying to learn it. And I don't like passing on bad information. So when I know something, I'll pass it on. But if I don't, I'll kind of be, I'll be vague in my own words and say, yeah, we have to go check that and we have to go figure it out. So September, 2001, and that, you know, I was going back in that that's it. I was going to go back because now there was an active war. Now, not only was there bonuses to go back in, but I was going to get a change of MOS. I'd gone to some school when I was in the national guard. Um, I found it more confusing than anything because my life experience did not, did not yield what these people were telling me in school. I'd already been on the other side of the door and they're telling me this is what I can expect when I graduate. And I'm like, excuse me, I'm already over there. That doesn't happen, but you can't really argue with your instructors. So unless you want a bad grade. <clears throat> so I went back and decided that I was just going to continue forward in the things that I knew. And then I was going to get the military to get me involved in deeper. So I decided to go in the Navy and be a SEAL. Well, I started training and then I had to pick a job for the Navy. Uh, the, uh, uh, the Navy had source rating. Right now, if you try to join the Navy as a SEAL, you'd sign up as an SO. And you'd be an SO unless you failed out of buds. If you're if you fail SO, you go get to be a BM. Um, so 
back then they didn't have SO. Uh, so you, there was several source ratings. You would go to that school first, kind of like the army where they're going to have a fallback, only they're going to have you doing something more important. Medic, medics would be, uh, then go to special forces medic school. Um, Electri uh, electronics technician and engine mate. There, there was a couple of engine men. There was a couple of them. A couple of source ratings for SEAL. Um, I took ET because I didn't know Kamo that well and uh, can't hurt. I just picked the job that, oh, if, if for some reason I get injured and I don't get through buds, uh, I'll be an ET instead and not stuck in the, the hull of the ship because the engine compartment's really hot. Uh, so I'm like, okay, I'd rather be, a long time ago, I would say I'd rather be cold than hot, not these days, but uh, back then I'd rather be cold than hot. So I picked ET, fine, air-conditioned spaces for all the gear. Uh, I got, I had a, I got a hiatal hernia, which was causing my dive docks a whole lot of problems, and they weren't really trying to push me through, so I got extra training time, at which point I got other injuries, which eventually got me to, I was finally getting to put my paperwork in, in my, I was about two and a half years into the Navy when I was finally getting a chance to go to Bud's because my dive dock wouldn't let me go right out of Great Lakes. Well, I had some fire controlmen do two things to me. I mean, I found out later, fundamentally the problem was if I was to be lost, I was slotted to be at my unit for three years. My, I was on a shore station. And the first thing this dude started griping at me about, like this guy, I don't, he, he um, I had an electronics senior chief and I had a fire controlman senior chief. And they're like, I don't know why the Navy put you on shore duty for your first assignment. And I'm like, this isn't my first assignment. It's my third branch of the service. So this guy fundamentally didn't like me because he was a senior chief and he didn't impress me. Like he was just a bureaucrat. And uh, Jocko Wolnink goes into how to deal with these kinds of people. He's got a podcast on it. I listened to it and laughed about it because um, I'd like to think it would have helped. But the real motivation between this guy, uh, instead of getting uh, an eval that would get me to buds, I got like a three, three eight or something like three six. It, it, you can't get more than lower than a three in any one cat or a three or below in any one category. And I got a three or something like that. Basically, Tony, his name was Tony. I'm not going to give his last name. Um, he submarined me from going to buds and said, yeah, you could apply, apply again. Well, when I took that eval up to the, the teams are like, yeah, you got to work that one off. It'll be two years before you can go. So at that point I just said, nope, I started my short timer calendar out of the Navy at a thousand and twelve days. Because the system over there will literally require me to re-enlist because Senior Chief Tony decided to fuck me with, with, uh, with a shitty eval. And it wasn't even shitty. It wasn't a bad eval. It didn't screw up any chances except me going to Bud's. And, and if I left, I'd only been at that unit for a little over a year. They would not have gotten a replacement for me until, until my tour was done there. So they were going to lose a body for two years. And that, you know, that's a shitty thing. That's a shitty situation for any supervisor to be in. And the Navy really shouldn't put people there. However, there was message traffic saying, you know, all able bodies are supposed to get pushed towards buds because we don't have enough bodies. So this guy in his own purview and bureaucratic bailiwick just decides whose long-term career goals are in his hands. And that, man, 
as soon it listen i just left that that day i left the navy i was trapped there till the end of the contract but that's the day i left the navy and i wasn't uh i i wrote out the rest of my time in that unit um, I almost got my extension canceled. I, I was on a four and a two. My ET contract was four plus two. It was four years with a two-year extension should I not re-enlist. I tried to cancel my extension and re-enlist in the Army. And that went all the way to the Department of the Navy. And the reason that it was told no was because ETs were uh, a needed source, a needed rating. So because the ET rating was needed, I did not perform a chop the last two years of the Navy off and go back to the Army transfer. So anybody out there who thinks that can't happen, use wrong. It's all the DOD. You can mess with that stuff a little bit if you know the system. But it didn't work for me, and I ended up going to a ship. My second assignment was the USS McFall. And um, I... I, I liked it. I mean, I liked the people there. I didn't really like the job. I didn't like the working conditions, and I wasn't a fan of the Navy. But the people there, 90% 90, 90 of the people on the ship were pretty fucking awesome. And that was really what made it okay, and I got along with 90% of them. And uh, other than that, I don't have, you know, it was great experience. It, it was almost like being in the military, but one step closer to the civilian world than I was in the Guard. Even though I had a civilian job in the guard and I was, I was really more busy with my own shit. And um, beyond that, then, uh, you know, if you're looking for apprenticeship time and, you're, and you don't want the kind of moral conundrums that come with combat, the Navy really isn't a bad place to go learn skills and, you know, decent people. The kind of people who volunteer for this shit, they're all kind of... Most of them are cool. Like, it... Most Army, most Marines, most of the people in the military are cool. The manner in which the military is sold to everybody is, you're helping. Anybody who does this, you are affirmatively helping. And that's not the truth, but that's what will get us all there. So you get the type of person who's really, des I don't want to say desperately, um, adroitly, persistently trying to help. And those people are just fucking cool to be around. And they are not common out in the real world. The military seems to centralize them. And that kind of made me think later, I think all these politicians are just trying to scrape us all up, get us overseas, get us killed, because we might hang out here and, and clean them up if we, because we are the type to help. So overall, the bureaucracy of the Navy is a travesty akin to the federal government that you all really understand. But beyond that, it wasn't a, it wasn't a bad experience. I didn't realize I was getting inner service time. That's not a thing when you're just trying to go and be, you know, I wanted to be special operations. I was trying to go as far into the fight as I could because I'm pretty good at this stuff. I, I think about it. I know how to do it, you know, physically in shape, mentally prepared, not, not intimidated by the task. And, uh, and the, the one thing that happened to me in Virginia was my only live room entry. I did one live room entry. It wasn't military. I was asleep, um, a friend was staying at my house, I woke up and there was a woman screaming, I looked at the pillow next to me, my wife wasn't there. So I'm like, Jesus, I have to kill Jake. And I opened up the door and my wife and Jake are standing, looking at the ceiling, and then I heard another scream. So apparently someone upstairs was screaming because uh, all I heard was, get off me, get off me, and it was the blood curling. It, it was not the happy scream. 
So Jake and I, uh, the, the whole thing, the whole thing was over and done with. From the time my eyes opened to the time I walked back through the door of my house was only about 30 or 35 seconds. We were upstairs. The door was open. So we didn't kick in the door. The door was open. I was in with a shotgun, bare chested. I was wearing shorts and a shotgun. Jake was wearing uh, shorts and a flashlight and a pistol. And there we were, bare chested, barefooted, and we basically executed a raid on this place. And the woman was not being, she, her clothes were on and she was not bleeding. She was crying, obviously upset, but she was basically dating a large child and he was sitting on her chest. And when we came, he was off of her chest and she said, I'm okay. We're just having an argument. And Jake and I left. That was it. Cause I knew if we stay long, if I kicked in that door, it would have been a problem. If we stayed longer, it would have been a problem. If that dude, if we hurt that dude, it would have been a problem. Well, we left. And then the cops tried to, they tried to hem us up. They, they knew they didn't have anything legally. They knew we were in the Navy. So they're looking at me and this guy. I was training to go to Bud's. Jake was in EOD team two and he had gotten injured and he was at Portsmouth. So I was letting him crash on my couch. So both of us are standing there looking like two ripped dudes. And the cop said he was a former SEAL. And he said, you guys aren't allowed to do this. And you know that. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you guys are obviously special operations. I'm like, no, we're not. I'm over here. And, I, and so this cop spends a half an hour right down to some dude in a truck, comes over, drives up, looks at us, shakes his head no, and drives away. So this cop fundamentally did not agree that... Jake and I were not what he thought we were. So that's how much we look like to the trained eye. This didn't mean anything to me. I'm a goddamn hardhead. I was just trying to do the thing and I got woke up and I was not happy about the cop not being happy about it. Um, and that was my Navy time. And I'm looking at this and it's 41 minutes. So I'm going to break this up into two episodes because I don't know why anybody's this interested about me, but uh, everybody likes to know where their information comes from. So I'm just going to break this up and break it up for my sake and for yours. Um, my website is the null hypothesis of politics.com and the book is free. There's plenty of podcasts there. If you're not listening, interested, if you're not interested in listening about me and you want to hear about something else, there's podcasts there and you can go learn about that. Um, this is educational. It's meant to be. So if you got any feedback, shoot me an email and I will see you in the next episode. When all of your flaws and all of my flaws are laid out one by one, a wonderful part of the mess that we made, we pick ourselves undone. All of your flaws and all of my flaws, they lie there hand in hand. Ones we've inherited, ones that we learn, they pass from man to man. There's a hole in my soul.